Take It From Us is taking a well-deserved break at the moment, so today's episode is a repeat program. Well, my guest and I have been doing a little uh, movement here in the studio to uh, Joe Cocker uh, with uh, his track, uh, Respect Yourself. I'm host of uh, Take It From Us, Mental Health Radio, and my name is Sheldon Brown. Um, And uh, Take It From Us is brought to you and funded by Framework Trust. Now, today we take a little bit of a... uh, uh, well, nosedive, I was going to say, uh, left-hand turn. Uh, we delve into war zones, African warlords, doctors without borders and the potential trauma of working in battle-weary environments. Yes, that's definitely a departure for Mental Health Radio, take it from us. Planet FM radio broadcasting colleague Richard uh, Leckinger devoted part of his life in three different war zones while working for Doctors Without Borders. As I discovered over a coffee last week, uh, Richard has another side to him which uh, may have helped support his emotional and mental health uh, while helping communities in war-tour zones. And uh, that other side of Richard uh, is meditation, a Hindu belief, and some history in his earlier life of depression and anxiety. So, Richard, uh, welcome to Take It From Us. Uh, your show uh, on Planet FM, uh, what's that called? Good morning, Sheldon. Um, my show is called Keep Auckland Beautiful Radio. Right, and uh, your devotion there is to uh, keeping Auckland beautiful, obviously. Well, it is. Um, basically, we celebrate um, community champions who are doing cool things for the environment or social things, but mostly environmental things. Right, well. Well, I uh, opened up my emails today to a uh, video about uh, the um, ice melting in the Antarctic and I think the prediction was that uh, there are signs right at this moment that there are great outpourings of water from Antarctica Mm -hmm. and uh, that most of our cities are going to be underwater within about uh, 50 years. (laughs) It's accelerating a lot faster than the original models predicted. So, yeah, it's not, not good news. So your uh, show on uh, Planet FM uh, sounds like a sort of a peaceful departure from parts of your earlier life in three of the world's uh, war-torn zones. Where where were those zones? I did a mission in um, in Burma, up on the far north in Kachin State, a mission in Somalia, and a mission in India. So all of those were. Uh, in war, in war at the time, uh, Burma and Somalia were active war zones. Um, India was not so much. It was technically yes, but no. Yeah. So, what what, yeah. t- what took you to these parts of the world? Well, you know, I was middle age, and I kind of suddenly realised that I was um, um, debt free, recently divorced, um, woman free. Then, yes, well, well yes, commitment free, um, no kids. No bills, debt-free, all those things, and I'd always wanted to do aid work. And, you know, people have that ambition, but most people don't act on it because life intervenes. Well, suddenly I thought, hang on a minute. If there's ever a time to go do this, it's now. I'm unencumbered, and I'm mature enough to go actually contribute something without um, – or, or not so old that it actually breaks me down. 
So who did you do this with? Well, I, I went and did a UNHCR course in Australia, and they it's almost like a um, a beauty pageant, and all the agencies are there actually doing modules, and then you interview with all of them at the end of it. So this is a United Nations humanitarian... Uh, yes, UNHCR is the... Um, it's the... It's the humanitarian and refugee um, arm, but they're not actually there hiring. They actually just run this course, and it's basically how to how to live and work in an NGO in a hostile NGO environment. Right, and uh, and of course it was Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières, that I ended up uh, getting a job with. So you weren't uh, committed to uh, Doctors Without Borders for when you first went into this? So you, no. You, you had a choice or were you allocated? No, no, definitely had a choice. And in fact, it, what you do is you go interview with all your course instructors who happen to be from all these different agencies. And they recommend, I think you should apply to X, Y, and Z. Well, the one common denominator amongst every one of those interviewees was, you should apply to Doctors Without Borders. So I did. Right. And of course, they were right. I got the job. So um, where was the first sort of assignment? First assignment was Burma, Kachin State, up in the far north, which is technically in civil war. Well, it is in civil war. In fact, it's just gone active again this past year. So you're you're keeping a, a personal eye on uh, what's what's developing there since you've been there. Yes, um, you become very emotionally attached to these places and. MSF itself has an, an internal newsletter that, that is released to current and former um, um, people who go on a mission. So you kind of get an inside scoop. It's something we're not even allowed to release to the public because really? it's just, well, it's just, it's raw. Yeah. You know, it's, it's unfiltered. It's not ready for the, for the news media. Right. Um, but it allows you to get an in, instant insight on what's happening in your old projects. So is raw, the word raw, is that a pretty good description of what uh, it was like up in the northern end of Burma? Um, yes. Uh, what, you know, when I first arrived, there was a ceasefire on and the KLA, the Kachin Liberation Army and the Burmese military were talking to each other. And so, okay, you know, on Sundays in particular, you could walk through the markets and there would be armed KLA with their children walking through the market and armed Burmese with their children walking through the market. Now, that situation came and went. But uh, for the most part, um, yeah, there was just perpetual tension. So so the role was to, um, to service or look after people that had been impacted by, by this war? Um, not in Burma. Um, in Burma, we were... We were an HIV project masquerading as a tuberculosis, malaria, and STD project because, of course, the Burmese government had formally declared that um, the moral uprightness of the Burmese people would prevent HIV from spreading. But we knew they were right at that 2% threshold where, where it would turn from a problem into a pandemic. And the other beauty is when somebody is um, when, when somebody has full-blown AIDS, the symptoms are identical to somebody with full-blown tuberculosis. So these AIDS patients could come to our tuberculosis clinics incognito, like just show up and they just look like TB patients. Right. So we could treat HIV AIDS and uh, treating is the kind of a, the wrong word, but uh, we could assist people with uh, full-blown HIV AIDS, but we were also treating, we had a serious tuberculosis project, a serious malaria project, a... Um, Mother to Child HIV Transmission Project, 
where we just quietly gave the medication to all the local hospitals. And, uh, and basically, the government knew we were, we were doing HIV testing. And, uh, and how did you get the word out there as to what your role was and how you could help uh, the Burmese people and that community you were working in? Well, our primary role was to run three big clinics in, well, in, th- in the three major towns of Kachin State. And we had tuberculosis clinics, which ran monthly, um, actually all over the state. Um, so so they, they were promoted as tuberculosis. Correct. And, and people who had TB would come once a month to be seen by our doctors um, and get more medication and, you know, various side effect treatments because TB treatment is brutal. Um, but the sexually transmitted disease clinics were open to anybody and, of course, we could also do HIV testing there. We could also do malaria testing in those same clinics. So people came in droves, whether they were military, whether they were Kachin military, whether they were civilian. And because we treated everybody without any question, you know, we didn't care who was who or what you had, um, people came and they trusted us. Right. And, you know, the the Burmese military were thrilled we were there. The Kachin Liberation Army was thrilled we were there. The people of Kachin, whether they were... Ethnic Kachin or ethnic Burmese were thrilled we were there. So in that regard, it was probably the safest place I've ever worked, even well, though it was a war zone. But how, how, did, how did things change when the war, the Civil War started again? I mean, I think you mentioned that uh, they had uh, settled some of their antagonisms or whatever when you were first there. Did the war begin again? The war began and yeah, it was on again and off again. And... Uh, for us, it wasn't a big drama. It, there were checkpoints every 20 miles because they, they still work in miles in Burma, or they did then. And uh, there, so there were military checkpoints. Now, whether they were run by one group or the other was almost irrelevant. We would just go through them. They knew who we were. Right. And they knew our, traf- our traffic patterns. You know, they, they, they knew exactly when, where we went, when we went, because we would spend two weeks in the main town, and then we would split up and go to the other two centers for the other two weeks of the month. Right. So, I mean, in terms of safety, uh, how, how did you feel and did you feel that it was a relatively safe? I've never felt safer in my life except when I, when I was in Burma, believe it or not. I mean, you would have a flat tire in the middle of the jungle a million miles from anything and people would materialize out of the bush, <laughs> change your tire, give you a cup of tea and send you on your way. Why? Because they didn't want repercussions from either military and they knew why you were there. Yeah. Um, you know, in high contrast to Somalia where every day was a risk assessment for kidnapping, shootings, um, you know, yeah. general warfare and punch-up. Yeah, I've, I've had that experience, actually. I was hitchhiking in uh, Central Africa in, in the Cameroons and uh, sitting on the top of a, a truck and trailer, a load of uh, rubber mats that they were taking into Bangui, and uh, they got the trailer stuck in the mud. And uh, it was amazing how many people came out of the bush and suddenly yes. this big machine sort of, you know... <laughs> arrived out of nowhere and then it happened it happened in the sahara as well you know that's right and you know in all these countries my experience was the majority of people on the ground are just thrilled that you're there and are more than hospitable and willing to help out even though there's a 100 percent language barrier with the bedouin of any of any of these places and you know the, the the vehicles we used to ride in to our outer areas in burma they used to smuggle jade in them because they knew 
our vehicles wouldn't get searched at the military checkpoints. So our vehicles would be ten, you know, completely overloaded to their maximum weight. They would get stuck in the mud all the time. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, because of the light of the jade that was because of all the weight of the jade that was buried um, and you know jammed into various crevices of the. Did you of, know about the? Jade? Oh yeah, we knew about it. <laughs> um, but you know, this, this was how you made a little bit of extra money. Well, we didn't. No, no, it had nothing to do with us. No, literally, it had nothing to do with us. But they, the the smugglers knew that our vehicles wouldn't be searched, right? Because we had. We had passes from the military government to go through all these checkpoints. And, of course, we handed out condoms at all the checkpoints um, because condoms prevent HIV and STDs and they were hard to get. Um, so we were condom fairies. I mean, we would literally hand out four or five boxes of condoms at every checkpoint. And there was right. a checkpoint every 20 kilometers everywhere. Right. <laughs> well, you mentioned Somalia as the sort of second, uh, uh, well, war area that uh, you worked in. Uh, were things uh, a little rougher there? Yes. And, and that was always active as in, you know, there was a, there was a, a punch up as we called them, you know, a, a shooting incident every other day at least. And, you know, within 500 meters of the compound. So, and a divided town, green line, north side clans fighting with south side clans. And half the population on both sides displaced from other war-torn areas. And they returned basically to, you know, think in in Maori terms, they returned to their rohe, right? To the the land of their clan. But even then, they were displaced even amongst their own because some of them had been away for generations. But the Civil War had driven them back to their kind of um, ancestral um, ground. So there's a lot of tension even within – tribes as well as between actual tribes that have been fighting for generations. I mean, Somalia over the years has probably most been most uh, infamous for the pirates uh, off the coast. Did you have any exposure to the Somali pirates? Oh, yes, because I was in um, – I was going to say I was in Kachin State. No, I was in Puntland State. Wrong, wrong project, Rick. Um, I was in Puntland and the pirates go off the Puntland coast. And so we worked with the pirates um, – most of the pirates were driven to piracy out of sheer desperation um, and what was happening was the European Union, people were taking their toxic waste, paying somebody to, to dispose of it and it was being taken by ship and dumped in the waters off of Somalia. That was resulting in massive fish kills which meant the fishermen didn't have a livelihood anymore. They became desperate. They became pirates. Now, they started basically attacking just these waste ships, not random. You know, they weren't pirating. They were attacking the people who were dumping toxic waste in their waters. However, as in all things, you know, you have a few kidnappings, you get a few ransoms. Before long, it was the Dubai Mafia who was running it. And even the Somali pirates weren't getting their cut to be – well – they, they were just stooges in a bigger war. Yeah, the story I heard was that uh, there was a lot of overfishing by um, other nations in that area. I there don't. was that as well. Right. Um, but between the overfishing from the neighbours and global neighbours, as well as the dumping of toxic wastes in Somali waters. Really? Yeah. How did they ever get away with that? Well, there's nobody patrolling it. Right. It's not, it's not, it wasn't really a sovereign state. It was a failed state. So that's the best place to go dump toxic waste. Yeah. Who's going to stop you? 
<laughs> well, let's uh, let's take a music break on uh, Mental Health Radio. Take it from us, and uh, we've got a track from a Kiwi group. Uh, we actually interviewed uh, these guys, and uh, this uh, track actually was our theme music for Take It From Us. Uh, it's from The Found, and it's called uh, Long Gone. The Found, the Kiwi group, uh, with their track uh, Long Gone. I recall uh, interviewing some of the uh, members of that group and all they wanted to do was play music. They weren't interested (laughs) in talking about their mental health. But I suppose uh, in some ways, uh, Richard, uh, we're talking to uh, Richard uh, Leckinger, who uh, works for um, Keep Auckland Beautiful. Um, and he is a fellow uh, broadcaster here on Planet FM and I uh, got chatting to him about his uh, his background. Um, I mean, you're in tight spots, uh, war-torn countries, um, and you have, uh, you have some history in your early life of depression and anxiety. Um, 
How did you manage your own uh, well-being? Well, because of the depression and anxiety I had um, right through my teen years and, and into early adulthood, I'd already developed a lot of coping strategies for chronic anxiety, which was which stood me in very good stead because war zones are states of chronic anxiety. A surprise. <laughs> a surprise. <laughs> and uh, so in that regard, I was better prepared than actually a lot of people who go into those situations simply because I already had this tool belt yeah. of, of, of coping mechanisms that I was used to deploying. So when you did those interviews with the United Nations humanitarian groups, did you disclose your your mental health experience? No, no, it never really came up. Um, one thing that they always do, and, and most of the organizations do this, is they have little boot camps before they actually formally hire you. And during those boot camps, they do put you under a lot of stress, and they're actually always observing you, and they give you various psychological tests so they're actually making an effort particularly msf makes an effort to uh to screen and if you don't get through that phalanx of testing and personal contact you don't get hired right i mean that could have been a time when your anxiety could have uh could have been generated could have been sparked oh absolutely everybody's nervous for a job interview right right (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's that's normal um that's you know anxiety is a normal part part of life and uh, so learning how to manage it is actually really important. It's just when it becomes an acute issue that, uh, well, you need to get help. Right. Uh, but you have adopted um, certain tactics and strategies and well-being uh, maneuvers and that sort of thing to manage your anxiety. Tell us a little bit about those. Well, probably the numbers one and two in, in no particular order, actually, are meditation and yoga. You know, you've got to get the stress out of your body, first of all, because we do pack an awful lot into our bodies and then wonder why it gets triggered later on down the road, right. you know. And, uh, and then a meditation practice. Now, both of those are... Um, basically chronic solutions for chronic problems, for chronic anxiety. You're not going to cure an acute episode of anxiety or depression by meditating or doing yoga. But you can actually prevent the onset, I think, I believe, by practicing regularly. Right. So when you say that we pack a lot of anxiety into our bodies, um, have you got any any signs? Can you, like a barometer, that you know you've packed too much anxiety into that body of yours and and you'll do something about it? Or now, I guess you're practicing meditation on a regular basis, so you're countering. I am countering, but actually the signs are always there. And, you know, even now, 30 years after I started meditating and doing yoga, I'll sit down in the morning for my morning sit and I'll feel tensions in my chest, in my back, in, in my upper back, in my lower back, and I'll go, mm-hmm, that's, that's the stress of this week. Yeah. I'm worried about this report. I'm worried about that relationship. I'm worried about yada, yada, yada. It doesn't matter. You know what it <laughs> I had a few of those this morning, uh, mostly because I played 30 minutes of tennis for the first time in three months. So you were reminded. <laughs> I was reminded <laughs> of my age and my frailties, that's, my vulnerabilities. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, one of the things that happens during meditation and a lot of – I don't do a formal body scanning meditation, but that's a very popular thing to do. But I start every meditation with a few body scans. And sure enough, you go in there and you find those points of tension. And, you know, unless you've played tennis the day before, all those points of tension generally are some form of psychosomatic, psychological – Stress related. You're, you're holding on to something. Yeah. You're holding on to something physically 
And that's just a reflection of what you're holding on to mentally. Right. And if you can let that energy go, you get that energy back to use in your day. And so what what rewards do you get from your meditation? Well, I've, I've probably just hinted on one of them. Um, when you're able to release that tension, um, you get that energy back. And so one of the things I get from daily meditation and yoga is a lot more energy, psychological. You know how our will can get sapped. You know, will, will is a limited resource, right? And a lot of that just has to do with mental energy. Well, the more stuff you're hanging on to, the less energy you have to put into your day, to your job, to your relationships, and, and into your willpower. So you're weaker on all those fronts. Well, if you can release that stress on a regular basis every day, you get that energy back and you're just more resilient for all those other things. So you've mentioned yoga as well. That just complements the meditation, does it? Or is it it another? Um, It complements. You know, for, you know, traditionalists, uh, the yoga comes first and the meditation comes second. Because if if you can't even straighten your back properly, how are you going to sit in a meditative pose and you know, how are you going to reach a state of equipoise if, you're, if your body is all racked with pain and, and tension? It's not going to work. Uh, equipoise, that's a new e- word for me. Equipoise, yes. Oh, equipoise. Uh, yes. Equal sort of, is, is that what it means? Equipoise? Well, uh, yes, th- think of the word poise. I mean, yeah. you kind of know what that means, but equipoise is, to, is, that, is that perfectly balanced moment where everything's just lined up. Like, you know, when you're standing up straight and it's effortless, and you think, how does that work? I should be falling over. I, 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 but I don't feel like I'm holding any tension. Right. And that's, that's equipoise. Yeah, the, the body scan that I do, I listen to on a, a CD, and I actually lie on the floor mm-hmm. with some books behind my back and my legs up on the bed. And it does give me the opportunity to do a little back exercise as that's well. That's right. And I find that uh, in, incredibly valuable. That is a fabulous thing to do when you find, actually, and if you find yourself in a state of acute stress, great thing to do is lay on your back put your legs up on the bed like a 90 degree angle with your legs and your back and just breathe into your lower back and just let it go it's a fabulous way to actually end a really bad day yeah right wow (laughs) and it's passive that's the other thing and no matter what condition your back is in that you're not going to hurt it so, so how many how many times a day do you feel it's necessary to meditate um, well, I have a, a rock-solid once-a-day habit. That's normal every morning, um, first thing in the morning. And um, so I'll have a, a 15, 20-minute stretch and a 30, 40-minute sit meditation. And, you know, that came and went in fits and starts over those 30 years. Don't think that I was <laughs> that disciplined. But once you've done it for many, many years, it starts to fall into a real habit and uh, and a good habit. And so now it's daily and it's pretty effortless to just fall out of bed. Even if I haven't slept well, even if I got went to bed late, I'm still up and sitting. Right. And, and I think uh, one's body knows that for the next 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 50 minutes, then, uh, you know, the body's not going to be doing uh, too much. It's going to be relaxing. It's, it's going to be in a meditative state. That's and I right. Think it falls into that much quicker than if you're only doing it every so often. Absolutely. The secret to meditation is regular practice, not necessarily, you know, oh, some great yogi said that, uh, you know, five minutes a day every day is much better than two hours on a Saturday morning. You know, it's just not going to work. 
Right. Well, let's take another music break on uh, Mental Health Radio. Take it from us. And uh, we've got a, a great uh, blues legacy this time. B.B. King uh, with uh, Let's Get Down to Business. <laughs>
Lights, B.B. Uh, King with Let's Get Down to Business and uh, guest uh, Richard Lackinger is just uh, telling me that uh, he uh, suddenly and very quickly found that B.B. King was playing just down the road and he grabbed a ticket and uh, this was, what, one of his last shows, uh, Richard, was it? Well, yeah, pretty pretty close to the end, so I was, I was actually thrilled. It was a real opportunity. I happened to be in the States, I happened to be at a loose end, and there happened to be an a show that was not sold out. All right. So, very serendipity. Oh, yes, well, great blues, uh, great blues artist. Um, so, we're talking to Richard about his, uh, well, we've got on to his uh, meditation practices uh, and, uh, you know, probably the reasons why um, he's adopted those because he did have an early experience of depression and anxiety. But, uh, well, that that is uh, i guess is a is a um a threat or a risk even now is it but uh, the meditation manages the anxiety and depression that's right um you know i'm of an age where uh, m- my first encounters with uh, mental health professionals it didn't go well now that doesn't mean you know in hindsight they it was an inexperienced practitioner and a very depressed, anxious young man, and the two just did not gel, Um, which is unfortunate in some respects because I didn't get the help I needed then. So I went searching for my own ways of of, of coping with this so that I could become a functioning adult, which I managed to do. Um, But later on in life, like before, during, and after my divorce, um, we both went to see therapists, um, both separately and together. And that was my first real encounter with a mental health professional um, as an adult. And so some of these things got canvassed. And although I didn't pursue it over any great length of time, it was definitely a worthwhile exercise to have that mirror Mm. held in front of you. You know, it was really good. Um, Were were you meditating uh, at that time? I was. I was. Yeah, I've been a 30-year meditator. So, yes, definitely. And and I would definitely recommend anybody with... um, Anyone going to see mental health professionals, if you want to meditate, tell them that you want to meditate because there are risks to meditating as there are there are downsides as well as upsides. Right. And um, your mental health professional needs to know that. Yeah, I think they need to get up to speed with the benefits of meditation. I mean, they still are very much uh, uh, pill oriented, and uh, well, they can be. Some of a lot, some of them have a medical background, which does kind of tend them more towards the um, pharmaceutical solutions <laughs> uh, off the bat. Um, but I think more and more healthcare, mental health care professionals are um, kind of understand the benefits of it and some of the risks. Um, because what, what are the risks, do you think? Well, part of the problem is, is you get a lot of um, famous gurus, famous teachers of meditation who've made statements that if misunderstood actually can lead to you doing yourself um, some self-harm. You know, like, there's this whole notion that you have to kill your ego, right? And then you'll be happy. Well, killing your ego, sitting down for 20 minutes a day trying to kill your ego is a ticket to mental health meltdown. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, isn't that about beating yourself up? And, uh, e- yes, ex- exactly. And what was meant by that statement of killing the ego, you know, it's like that old Christian thing that's been, that's turned into uh, money is the root of all evil. Well, the actual phrase is love of money is the root of all evil. Now, those are two completely different meanings, right? Well, the same thing has happened with this idea of killing your ego. 
And the idea is nobody can function without an ego. It's like a, it's like the radar on a ship. It's what keeps you safe in the world and helps you navigate, right? Well, surely it's <laughs> the essence of, of uh, self-esteem and self-confidence. Exactly. And so it's not a question of killing the ego. It's a question of killing your attachment to the ego. And that's why I say the language gets very subtle and weird and everything else. But to somebody who just reads that statement, kill your ego, and then goes on to practice something, you can actually create a dissociation. You can actually dissociate from yourself, particularly if you're struggling with parts of yourself you don't like. Right. You know, if you've got a mental health issue, I hate this part of myself, you're already disassociating from it. Yeah. And then some teacher says, kill your ego so you disassociate further. Well, you're just making a rod for your own back. Yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> I haven't, uh, you know, run into that, uh, those, those sort of risk factors. You're... you're um, you have a Hindu belief or you are a, what, a member of the Hindu? Oh, it's a tricky thing saying you're a Hindu when you're born and raised in the West. Um, it's probably more proper to say I, my, my belief system is Advaita Vedanta, which is a particular school of Hinduism. Um, Advaita is uh, Sanskrit, isn't it? Advaita is non-dualism. And so you, can, you, could, argue, you could argue that that's a... Dualism? Full, well... You've heard many religions profess that, that uh, you know, everything is one, right? The whole universe, it's all one thing. Well, as soon as you say something's one, you imply that there's another. So those Hindu philosophers said, well, it's not one, it's non-dual. It's not two. A uh, dual. Yeah, dual. Dual. Dual, yes. Sorry. My American accent, I see. Yes, non-dual. Dual. Dual, yes, I see. Um, so, I mean, where did you get an introduction to the Hindu beliefs? Well, I was born and raised Catholic. And like a lot of Catholics, I lapsed in my depressed teenage years. Um, so I went shopping early in my 20s and I said well uh, that worldview doesn't work for me um, but that doesn't mean that you know we throw the baby out with the bathwater completely let's go shopping so I shopped around I studied Taoism and Sufism and Islam and Hinduism and and various flavors of Buddhism various flavors of Hinduism um, and and just had a look around and so and and then actually kind of almost sideways accidentally bumped into my guru my teacher and went okay. I'm on. I'm on his team. Right. Let's see where this goes. So, does that help uh, in terms of your values, your relationships, your attitudes to people? I mean, absolutely. So, what are some of the what are some of the values that you hold uh, as important? Well, and and ironically, I tend to express these in Christian terms. A, I was raised Christian, and B, because most of our listeners have have been raised in a kind of a post-Christian context. <laughs> but but that whole notion of, um, you know, whatever, whatever you do, you know, whatever you do unto the least of them, you do unto me, that, that particular concept is very much part of um, Hinduism and, and karma and the fact that everything is, um, we're all related. We, we all come down to the same essence. So if I harm you, I'm actually harming myself because that essence is shared between us. Right. Right. So, so if, I mean, if we get angry with somebody, we, we do harm ourselves, don't we? Because it, it lifts the stress level. Yes. And more often than not, we're setting up um, psychic vibrations in ourselves. Um, 
and we may or may not do injury to the other person. They may be completely immune to our anger. Right. <laughs> or they may not, and we may actually do them psychological harm. Depends upon, you know, their age, their maturity, the situation. Um, but whenever we get angry, we're doing ourselves as much harm as we are doing. But isn't the benefit of whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism, isn't the value that we learn, we are on a, a path of self-discovery. And, That's right. And we learn that those negative traits of ours that we've probably expressed for 20, 30, 50, 60 years, you know, that if we can change those, life becomes much more happy, uh, more joyous, more peaceful, more calm. Yes, and it's not that we shouldn't ever get angry because a lot of times anger is perfectly warranted. It's how we deliver the messages of our anger and how quickly we return to our state of equilibrium afterwards. If I'm upset with you, if I express it in an appropriate way and I can see in your eyes that you got the message, I can let go of it. Yeah. And now it's not echoing in my psychic head yeah. anymore. I've expressed myself and so often what gets bottled up inside is the stuff that didn't get expressed properly. So it's, it's perfectly okay to be angry, absolutely okay to be angry. It's how you express it and how you act on it that actually determine yeah. who gets hurt, whether it's you or them. <laughs> as, as a foreigner, Richard, I'll call you a foreigner since you come from the States, but I guess you've lived in New Zealand for 26 long, years. 26 years. Well, you're almost a Kiwi then. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, what's your assessment of Kiwis' ability to express themselves, particularly on issues that may cause embarrassment or upset? Hmm. Now, that's interesting. So you, you want my kind of foreigner's perspective on foreigner's that? Foreigner's perspective, yeah. Right, because it's always different. I'm always fascinated by how different cultures do this. And having worked in so many, I've seen, I've seen this. Um, Kiwis can be quite blunt sometimes um, expressing how they feel about things. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's not. Uh, you know, it cuts both ways. Um, I think they've got a pretty good balance between um, a very arrogant, let it all hang out type attitude. Aussie attitude. And uh, yeah, v versus say, and, and I'll just say an Asian, I'm being very generalist here, where it's about saving face and you'll tiptoe around the issue, sometimes to an extreme, sometimes not. Um, but, you know, my behavior in Burma and how I communicated was very different. And my obsession with manners that I was raised with served me very well in Burma because I would tiptoe around issues to save face. The last thing I want to do is confront you with your truth because right. then you lose face and our relationship ends. But, but also, of course, you're playing a role with doctors with boys. That's right. So I suppose you've got to um, preserve the reputation of that organization as well as your own personal reputation. But not only that, I have a duty to, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, to actually deal with the Burmese officials and the Kachin officials that I dealt with in a culturally appropriate way. Right. I was the for true foreigner there. There were only three expats in all of Kachin state. It, it was closed to foreigners because of the Civil War. Right. So there's only three foreigners in the whole state. So we're basically representing everyone else. Do I have a right to be obnoxious? No. Right. I've got to play by your rules. Right.
Well, you, you must have been quite a novelty uh, if you were one of only three Europeans. I mean, I've been in places and mentioned Central Africa, you know, and I guess I was tall, I was red-headed at the <laughs> time. Right, and, yeah. uh, you know, I mean... Uh, there was, uh, it was, you know, you were a bit of an attraction to, particularly to young Africans, African yep. kids on the street. And not much different and, in Kachin, where where they don't tend to be particularly large in stature. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, these huge white people. Right. And but it also made that's why we felt safe because yeah. everywhere where we went, there was no doubt who we were. Right. Yeah, there was no question. They saw a white person. Oh, they're from MSF. There was no... Uh, okay, so, yeah, the job was sort of done for you. Well, let's uh, take our third track. Uh, we're playing a, a little bit of blues on Take It From Us today, and uh, we've got uh, Tina Turner with uh, Show Some Respect.
Well, that was uh, Tina Turner with Show Some Respect and, of course, our uh, theme music from Joe Cocker is Respect Yourself. And uh, uh, just ask our guests as uh, we close the show today, uh, respect, uh, Richard, um, an important value? Absolutely. And uh, one of the trickiest ones is self-respect. I mean, you know, that's, well, it's right there in the title of your songs, isn't it? Right. And uh, if you can learn that early in life, it'll stand you in good stead. But uh, some of us... um, how do you respect yourself as, as self-respect? Um, I guess the meditation is well, one the, of those The meditation things. is one of those things. Yeah, it, it, the rituals of self-care. And, uh, you know, in the business world, they say pay yourself first, then pay all the bills and da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, that's respecting yourself. I mean, those are all little hooks, ways that you say, hang on a minute. If, if things aren't right at home, and I'm talking about in my own head and heart, yeah. then they're not going to be right in any other part of my life. So the first, the, first, the first place, you know, charity begins at home, blah, blah, all those cliches. Well, they're cliches for a reason because if we've got that self-respect, that fundamental will to look after ourselves, that's going to echo into all the other parts of our lives. So are there other ways that you, you look after yourself? I mean, diet or, um, you know, reducing alcohol or exercise? or Well, I never was much of a drinker. I kind of had to force myself with the peer pressure in, at university. I'm not sure that helps my depression, to be brutally honest. Um, so I've never been much of a drinker. But, um, yes, I'm a vegetarian, which, which is optional in Hinduism. It's not mandatory. Um, yeah, so I do look after myself in terms of diet. I make sure that I get out and get... Um, bit of vitamin D? Yeah, get a bit of vitamin D. I do a lot of forest bathing. Forest bathing? Right, which is a Japanese concept officially. Um, actually, they've done a lot of research on it in Japan. Like, you're you're going to tell me that it's uh, taking your clothes off and running around the uh, <laughs> the uh, cowrie trees. No, in some respects, you, you could relate it to mindfulness meditation in that you go into the forest and you literally drink in each of the five senses until you are feeling as close to one with the forest as possible and you're basically using the forest as the object of your meditation. And uh, just by drinking in the the smells, um, did you know that terpenes, the oils in wood, are actually um, calming? Yeah. I mean, it's a chemical. It actually calms. So when you go into the forest and you literally smell the wood, that's calming. calming. It's, it, it's very good for your mental health. It's, right. it's, it's like physical medication. It's pharmaceutical. Yeah. The sounds of a waterfall or a babbling brook or the wind in the trees, those are all... Or, or the native birds Correct. singing. Those are all things that are mentally soothing. So basically you go in and bathe in all this right. soothing stimulus and, uh, oh, it's delicious. I highly oh. recommend it. Well, it's a wonderful way, to, uh, wonderful uh, message to end on. Try some, uh, what did you call it? Forest forest bathing. Forest bathing. There you go. And you could do it uh, as close as Parnell because there's a lovely forest between Parnell and uh, the Domain. I walk through there occasionally. And uh, forest bathing, it would be an ideal location. Even the art of bonsai is a form of forest bathing because you become so absorbed in what you're doing with that one singular yeah. Plant. Well, I'll be able to make that take that approach to my vegetable garden. It's that joy you get in your that, veggie garden is very much yeah. of, of that ilk. Wonderful.
Everybody sing, everybody dance. Lose yourself in wild romance. We're going to party, crumb, fiesta.
dança, samba, só dança, samba. Vai, 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 vai. Só dança, samba, só dança, samba. Vai. Só dança, samba, só dança, samba. Vai, 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 vai. Só dança, samba, só dança, samba. Vai. 